welcome everyone to the Herbert Smith Freehills Corporate Crime and Investigations podcast. I'm Rob Hunt, a partner in the London CCNI team. Over the next few months, we're going to be delving into key areas around investigations, including looking at the challenges that often arise and how best to deal with them. We're going to be looking at all aspects of investigations, from scoping through to reporting to authorities, the challenges of gathering and reviewing data, how to approach witness interviews, and how to deal with the complexities of a cross-border investigation. We'll also be introducing you to members of our global corporate crime and investigations team. We'll be hearing from team members across the globe, including from here in London, uh, Asia, EMEA, and New York. Today, as well as introducing this series, we're going to be discussing investigations, scoping, and planning. I'm joined today by Liz Head, counsel in our London Corporate Crime Investigations team, and Eamon McCarthy-Keen, associate. Welcome, Liz and Eamon. Thank you. Um, Can we start by maybe just uh, you introducing yourselves and telling us a bit about your career to date? Sure. Thanks very much, Rob. Um, So, yeah, I am an off-counsel here in the London office. Um, I am what is known as an HSF lifer, having trained here and having specialised in investigations and corporate crime work really throughout my career. So I've been involved in a variety of different investigations over the years for a wide range of clients in different sectors, and that includes serious fraud office investigations, HMRC, police, and also those um, that are carried out purely from an internal perspective. I'm Eamon McCarthy-Keane. I'm an associate in the corporate crime and investigations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. Uh, I was previously at a criminal litigation boutique firm where I advised uh, individuals and corporates uh, in relation to a wide range of business crime issues uh, and who also faced criminal enforcement or regulatory action by agencies such as the Serious Fraud Office, the FCA or prosecutors like the CPS. Great. Well, thanks both. And just to give the listeners a a bit of background about myself, um, I'm also an HSF lifer. I've been here for um, over 20 years in the London and Asia offices. Uh, I started off um, in London as a a commercial litigator uh, and um, spent two years uh, in Jakarta and also uh, in Hong Kong as a a junior uh, lawyer. Um, When I was made up, I moved to Hong Kong Uh, and was there for nearly nine years, um, where I worked with our um, global head of practice, Carl Wombolt, um, and together we um, have done a number of um, significant investigations across Asia. Uh, We did several investigations in China, so the um, uh, China end of uh, a number of FCPA-related matters, um, also done investigations across uh, India, Southeast Asia, um, Hong- and in Hong Kong. I moved back to London um, a few years ago and had two years on to comment with the, uh, the SFO, uh, which was a very interesting experience, um, and returned to the HSF London office last year. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the, the panel today. And so let, let's kick off uh, at the beginning of the life cycle of of investigation. Um, Eamon, if a client calls saying that they've, for example, received allegations of misconduct relating to their business and they, they say, what do I do? 
Um, what are the immediate points to consider? I think it's important in the initial stages to um, assess, do an initial assessment of those allegations. The client needs to understand what has happened, what is known so far, who is making the allegations, what is the, the source essentially. And it's really important that the, the company um, does an investigation in the beginning in order to determine the facts. And one of the things it needs to consider, well, where is this information, where does it need to look, um, who does it need to speak to? Um, and it's important in order to establish whether or not those allegations are credible that it, it does this um, fairly quickly because um, particularly in investigations which are quite time sensitive, that it, it, it carries out um, an initial assessment of those allegations. And one of the things it needs to determine is well, what is the nature of the misconduct? Um, there are a number of issues that can arise in a company. It could be an employment grievance, it could be a regulatory issue, it could be a criminal issue if we're talking about um, misconduct relating to uh, criminal offences such as bribery or money laundering or fraud. Um, there needs to be some considerations as to whether or not law enforcement needs to be notified of those um, issues. Uh, there could be a civil issue as well. So it's important to establish exactly what the misconduct is, who was involved, um, in order to determine whether or not the company or any individuals involved um, have any criminal, civil, regulatory exposure. So if uh, a client calls and, for example, there's been um, an, an allegation by an anonymous whistleblower of serious corruption by the CEO, do the clients have to run to the authorities immediately and uh, start making notifications or is it best to take a bit of time to um, make an initial assessment? I think it's best to take some time to do an initial assessment to determine, uh, again, whether those allegations are credible, uh, whether there is any evidence before you consider whether to report to the authorities. Um, the Deferred uh, Prosecution Agreements Code of Practice does says that it does say that it would be in the public interest if a company self-reports within a reasonable time of the offending coming to light. Um, what's reasonable obviously depends on the circumstances, but it will involve an initial investigation of, of those allegations and, if possible, trying to identify um, what exactly has happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, um, you know, I quite often say to clients when, when this sort of situation happens and there's, there's quite often a sort of crisis management uh, aspect to, to what's going on, that it's important just to take a breath um, and to uh, step back and, and, and make that initial assessment. I don't think, for example, the SFO or law enforcement would necessarily expect you to be running in on day one unless it's you know very clear that something's uh, uh, very serious has happened, which nine times out of ten it isn't, um, and uh, it's usually um, the the first thing you need to look at is really the credibility of, of an allegation that's been made. H can you make a, an initial assessment of that of, of the credibility of that allegation? And that all what goes to. Um, do we know who's made the allegation? So, for example, if it's been made anonymously, it's often very difficult to make that assessment because um, it, it could be anyone, right? It could be, and, and certainly um, in uh, investigations I dealt with in China, um, people were emailing from TomAndJerry.com. <laughs> no idea what they were, who they were. And as the investigation unfolded, sometimes 
try you could you could work out who it might be but it you know it could be a disgruntled employee uh, it could be someone with uh, who um, is making a malicious allegation against someone they don't like it could be a competitor it could be completely um, uh, baseless um, equally you know you may have um, a situation where someone a valued employee has resigned and in an exit interview brings up a matter in which immediately um, the, the, the view is that it, it is a, a credible allegation because you know the employee, you trust them, you've worked with them, and what they say on the face of it makes sense. And so those are sort of, I think, the sort of initial kind of things that um, clients have to, to grapple with um, when then deciding how to take it to the sort of next step and to... Um, whether to, to to look at things further, um, what um, Liz just just on that for example, um, do do clients when they receive allegations do they necessarily have to conduct an internal investigation? I think there will be. It, it comes back again to this point about your initial assessment and and what you're dealing with because I think there will be times where you will have to investigate you might be you might have an investigations policy that says we will take these particular steps or we will take reasonable steps or we will investigate these particular types of allegations you might have whistleblowing procedures in which you commit to take particular steps or to investigate particular types of reports um, or, or you might be in a regulated, regulated sector where you need to assess whether you've got self-reporting or, or other disclosure obligations, which again is going to necessitate some level of investigation. Or you might be outside that black and white situation um, and you might have more discretion. I think that there would be circumstances in which you can conclude it's not necessary to investigate if taking your example of maybe an anonymous or very vague allegation, something that's on a, a very niche blog and is unsubstantiated, you don't really know if there's anything there. That said, it's going to be a very fast specific determination whether you do or don't investigate and, and the scope of that investigation in any given situation. And I think... What I would say is keeping a record and an audit trail of that decision-making process is going to be crucial. If you can reasonably conclude there's nothing for you to investigate, what happens in a year or two when that anonymous allegation is repeated in the press or something comes to light through a different channel, something comes to you from law enforcement, in that situation you want to be able to point to a, a reasoned and reasonable decision not to do anything and you're then putting yourself in a much better position. I think this comes up, I think, in a lot of investigation decision-making. It's would you be comfortable explaining your decision and can you explain your decision years after the event to law enforcement or even a judge if it really comes to it? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Having a process to make that initial decision and recording this decision is, is, is really important. Um, and, you know, these are often difficult decisions to make. Um, 
uh, it may be that you've, uh, on one hand, got a very serious allegation, credible allegation, and the decision is relatively easy that you, you do need to conduct an investigation. But as you say, Liz, there may well be, and quite often, it's actually much more complicated than that. There's a history to, to things, um, or you may not know, uh, you may not be able to make an assessment of a, of a very vague allegation. I've certainly been involved in cases where, you know, senior management have received letters through the post um, from an anonymous uh, whistleblower. And, um, you know, companies receive a lot of these types of um complaints and allegations and with the best will in the world you can't investigate everything um there you know there are implications to conducting an investigation there are costs implications there are um uh implications to management time to uh the um you know the the, the morale of a business that you're looking into so these these things all need to be weighed up and um, uh, and and uh, in the end, as you say, recorded as a so that if if that decision is questioned later on down the line, um, uh, the person who's made that decision is able to explain it. So just coming on now to um, the situation where um, the, the 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 client has made a decision to to conduct an investigation. Um, what next? I mean, how, how do you scope an investigation? There's so many different ways you can do it, right? You could instruct external counsel. You could get forensic accountants involved. You could go and look at years and years of data. Or you could, on the other hand, do a much narrower focus of um, internally in-house counsel, uh, only looking at one specific issue that's arisen. How do you make that decision on scope? Again, it, it can be really difficult because at this very early stage, you may well only have very, very limited information and you don't know how things will evolve. I've lost count of the number of times you, you start, you think you're looking at one issue or one fat pattern and it just changes into something completely different. So I think there always has to be a certain amount of flexibility kind of going with it, reevaluating as the picture becomes clearer. But I'd say some of the kind of scoping things you probably will want to be thinking about at the outset will be what's triggered the investigation. Is it is it a dawn raid? Are the authorities already ahead of you? In which case your priority might be trying to get up to speed as quickly as you can, if not get ahead of them a bit and, and manage the rest of the investigation. On the, uh, another end of the spectrum, is it a kind of discussion with an employee where you've got time to have follow-up discussions with them, understand really what the issues are and, and take it at a much more measured approach? Um, other things, I think, are, are going to be, in a way, what, what issues are you trying to address? Because that can, in particular, inform who is addressing them. If you've got a mixed bag, which can, in my experience, that can often be the case with a whistleblower, they might bring up a conduct issue, something about a particular bit of the business. They might also have HR type concerns about particular individuals. They may even have raised it with people and you've got sort of internal governance issues. In that situation, is it right for the same people to be looking at everything? Do you need to split it up? Um, so I've been an, on an investigation where 
we HSF were looking at the, the conduct in a particular business, but the sensitivity of the HR issues that the whistleblower had raised at the same time meant that it just wasn't appropriate for us to be lumping everything in together. They needed to be handled separately and sensitively. Uh, and they shouldn't, it wasn't right for them to be reported through the same kind of internal channels as the other stuff. So there's a bit, there's a few moving parts there around what you're looking at and who it's appropriate for it to go to. Um, and in hand in hand with that, I think is is the jurisdictional question. What jurisdictions might you be dealing with? If you're a global business, you say you you say have an issue in your London office that someone's raised. Do you need to consider what payments going through other jurisdictions? Are there back office functions based in overseas offices? Is there data? Where are data stores? Where are the other parties? Um, and as we all know, some law enforcement and regulator, regulatory bodies have longer arms than others. I'm thinking of the DOJ. Um, getting a team in place quite quickly that can cover those different jurisdictions will will pay dividends down the line so that you're not in a situation that I've seen previously where you've got people on a plane to a, a particular local office to go and collect data and you have to stand them down at the airport because there are data protection issues and they can't just go in and, yeah. mm-hmm. and get stuff and bring it back. So I think those are some of the initial things that are going to play into how you scope it, but with, with an eye on the evolving picture and, and not being wedded to that initial plan, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think, you know, the plan is the key document, isn't it, at the beginning? Um, You have all of these factors, you're looking, you know, you're trying to work out what the issues are, what the time, the potential time periods of the issues to look at, trying to look at the the individuals who might be involved in it, and that might not be clear at a very early stage. Um, But as you say, it's, it's bringing all of that together and putting it in a plan, um, really helps. <laughs> I think define it, even though um, you're likely to then have to amend that as you as you go along and more more information becomes available. Um, I think that touches on a, a really key aspect of the investigation is, is flexibility and adaptability because yeah. the investigation does evolve. There are multiple lines of inquiry, yeah. uh, and you do need to retain that level of flexibility within the plan and, and constantly monitor whether. You actually whether the scope needs to be expanded or whether further lines need to be you know, pursued. So that's an important point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Eamon, just just um, thinking now about structuring an investigation. Um, again, you know, you quite often find that something's blown up. Um, I've I've found in in cases that you know often lots of people want to be involved in an investigation, partly because they want to know what's going on, partly because they may have a bit of skin in the game, um, you know, uh, and the client says to you, right, well, who should we have at our end directing mm. you, HSF, as, as um, for, uh, in terms of the investigation? How, how best to sort of structure? What, what, are, the, um, what are the considerations that um, clients need to consider? An important point is who's going to be part of the client group and this is very important in the context of a corporate client because um, under English law um, there are only certain members within a company who can 
uh, obtain and receive advice on behalf of a company. And it also makes sense if you are um, receiving instructions from a company for that client group to be fairly narrow so that there isn't um, lots of people speaking, giving you potentially conflicting instructions. So ideally, you'd want just one point of contact within that client group, but you certainly have to make sure that there are um, enough people within that group to be able to represent the company. Um, and also, there have been some issues, and, and I've got experience of this, that sometimes if you're acting for a very small company and you've got one uh, person on the client in the client group, and then that person is then implicated in the internal investigation. Um, it becomes very difficult to then bring someone else on board yeah. uh, who might not necessarily um, have full knowledge of, of, of the company and what's happened. But it's 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 a, a good practice to have at least more than one person within that client group. And certainly in instances of big companies, they tend to... Um, um, and they tend to create a, an investigations committee, which is an independent group, uh, a group of people, who senior individuals who are able to provide instructions to that independent law firm and also make uh, decisions um, on behalf of the company, especially when it's very important decisions regarding um, whether to notify authorities. And also in those instances, it's often very senior individuals, maybe a board member might be on that investigations committee, but it has to be someone who, people who aren't necessarily implicated or involved in the, in the investigation or in the misconduct, because it's important for that independence to be retained. Um, so that's so that's setting up the the client group or the investigation mm-hmm. committee. That, that's that's the the initial initial part of it. Uh, in terms of uh, next steps, and uh, like um, Liz touched upon understanding exactly you know, where the information is and potentially collecting it and uh, understanding where it's stored and analyzing data protection issues. It, these, these are all going to be part of, of the, the structure of the investigation. Um, instructing potentially uh, digital forensics teams to go in there and collect data, um, um, review teams to go through that data with you uh, in accordance with the investigation plan is going to be key to that investigation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as you say, independence is key when structuring um, the, an investigation committee uh, and <clears throat> not always straightforward. It, it sounds uh, easy on paper, but quite often in these complex situations, um, you're, you're trying to set that up at the beginning when the facts aren't really known and where people aren't always very candid as to um, their involvement, previous involvement, or uh, you know their relationships with those who might be involved. So it's always something that needs to be kept under under review. And then obviously, privilege is important as well. And um, stru- structuring for privilege um, <clears throat> is a key a key point, as you mentioned under English law. Having a tight client group is um, is important. Um, but also, you know, the, the investigation might span across different jurisdictions. There may be the underlying conduct may be in a country where there is no privileged protection at all, um, or there may be um, English issues, English law issues, but also potentially US issues where the, the law of privilege is different. So all of that sort of needs to be sort of considered from the outset. Um, we're nearly out of time. I was just going to ask you one one question before we before we we finish this uh, first episode of the the podcast. 
Um, investigations can be a bit hairy sometimes. Uh, as I mentioned, they, they quite often result in a bit of a crisis for the company. Um, and what do you have any tips for, you know, for those involved in investigations? What, what makes a good investigator? Eamon. Uh, I think a a good investigator is someone who's able to to analyse and evaluate with a a critical eye the information that's in a document or a situation or people when they're being interviewed and understanding how it it relates to, or not, as the case may be sometimes, to to the the scope of the investigation and the the issues being investigated. It's that a person who's able to weave the threads together because there's a, there's a huge amount of information that can be uncovered um, and collected and it's about trying to understand well, how, what are the issues that are being um, investigated, what are, um, what are the, the key points that the, for, for the company to consider and um, that, that ability to get stuck into the granular detail while also maintaining a 360 view um, to, uh, on the investigation um, I think is incredibly important but also um, we talked about flexibility and I think that's that's a, another important point because there are going to be several tangents and red flags and you don't necessarily have all the facts at the beginning of an investigation and, and you do have to adapt um, your investigation as, as it goes along um, to uncover potentially further red flags or further misconduct that might not have been initially identified yeah Liz, any thoughts on that? I I fully agree with all of that. I think the 360 view is is really important. And I kind of apply that to time as well. So the, the, the backward looking piece about kind of going through the documents with an eye to detail, understanding and unpicking exactly what happened. But then... This is not a phrase, but I'm going to try and invent it. 2020 foresight. Um, Doing everything you're doing with an eye to what's going to happen in the future. Um, So why are we collecting these documents? Why are these people our custodians? How does this all feed into the end game? How are we going to be able to explain it later on? Um, And having that kind of route map through the whole thing that you can refer back to because this is something that could be going on for five years mm-hmm. across multiple jurisdictions with, with hundreds of people involved. So having that kind of central brain that's that's making the decisions and recording them means you know you've always got a structure. You can always come back and say, we did this because of X, which yeah. I think is really important. Yeah. No, I agree. And, I, I, if, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, having a cool head as well. Uh um, there's quite often a lot of noise around when, when these things blow up and it's trying to just step back and, and work out what the key issues are and as you say Liz working about, working out what you need to do and where, where you need to get to um, getting things organised that's, that's half the battle <laughs> right um, whether if there's you know law enforcement involved trying to sort of get a, a relationship going with them and, and manage expectations and uh, things under control from that perspective. But if it's just an internal investigation, just having a plan, managing expectations of the client um, and the stakeholders within the client so, so that really, you know, the, the path forward is, is clear. 
And look, in terms of other skills, I think it's uh, trust but verify. Um, you're always going to be looking for, you're going to be speaking to people. Every, everyone has their theory about what's happened, but really, you know, got to be tenacious and keep looking for the evidence, um, thinking of different ways that uh, you might be able to um, understand the facts of, of what's been going on. And, um, you know, that's changed over the years. That people now use WhatsApp all the time, devices that aren't necessarily backed up on the company systems, um, email review, sometimes uh, reveal quite interesting things, but not always. Um, you know, sometimes come, not the interesting things you were looking for, different exactly, interesting different things. things. Different things. Um, and so different investigative techniques uh, and um, the ability, as you say, to sort of step back and look at it in the round is, is really important. So look, thank you very much. I think that's all about we've got we're about all we've got time for today. Um, thank you very much for listeners for, for, for joining us for this first episode. And we hope you found it interesting. Please let us know if you have any feedback. Uh, and we will see you next time when we're going to discuss Dawn Raids.